And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I sat down this week with Beto O'Rourke, the former congressman from El Paso whose energetic near-miss campaign against Senator Ted Cruz made him a national figure, but whose subsequent races for president in 2020 and for governor of Texas last year ran into choppier waters. Beto, who is currently a Pritzker fellow at the Institute of Politics, reflected on those races, on lessons learned, on what was gained and what was lost, and he talked about the future. Here's that conversation. Beto O'Rourke, good to see you, my friend, here at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, where you're a fellow. So happy to have you here. It's been amazing. Um, and it's, you know, at, at a time where I feel like I really needed some um, inspiration and I wanted to feel optimistic about the future of this country, um, the IOP, University of Chicago, these young people that I've had the chance to meet with and learn from, they've provided that in abundance. Yeah, man. They, they, they have that, my faith. They, they have that power, don't they? They do. That's why I like hanging around here. To part of the point you just made, you've just gone through three successive election cycles, huge races, all enveloping. How does one, with varying levels of success, but how do you decompress? How do you how are you doing? I guess I'm asking. Yeah. In in all the important ways, I'm I'm doing great. Um, you know, Amy and I are continuing to raise our kids in El Paso, Texas, and they're just flourishing. You know, our oldest Ulysses is a sophomore. Uh, sister Molly's a freshman right behind him. They're, Goes by fast, and their youngest brother's in sixth grade. Yeah. Um, so he's the one who still talks to us. You know, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the exactly. Other two are <laughs> monosyllabic, you yes. know, or maybe even just kind of a nod when they when they come in. But it's it's been wonderful and extraordinarily restorative. I've been spending a lot of time outdoors, uh, which has always been good for me in life. So I just did this great backpack in the Black Range of the Gila National Forest in New Mexico, which is a place my dad would take me up when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, I went to this kind of remote section in the Animas Creek Valley and visited this site where in 1879, Victorio, uh, leader of the Warm Springs Apaches, defeated this regiment from the 9th Cavalry um, in what was described as a massacre and an ambush. What was interesting to me as I, as I read the history after making that trip was most of the troopers from the 9th Cavalry were Buffalo soldiers. So here were these people who, until recently, had been enslaved, newly freed, pursuing people who had been as free as a person can be up until recently, the Apaches, at the behest of a country whose foundational premise was one of freedom. Um, and all of that in this one place in the remote wilderness that, thank God, we as a country chose to preserve. Now, so that is that, is that history? Can you still teach that history in Texas? I don't, I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. Um, it, it, right? It's, it's a real challenge right now in Texas where you're on the leading edge of the debate on critical race theory, on access to reproductive health care. Um, you lead the country in the number of school shootings. Um, you can't keep the lights on in the energy capital of the world. We have some real challenges in Texas, but 
this time with family, this time being outdoors, this time diving deep into history and here in Chicago, connecting with the future. Um, it, it's recharging the batteries for the fight that is going to be an uncertain one. In fact, the only thing we know about it is it's going to be a long and very hard one in Texas. And the options before me and millions of my fellow Texans are we either succumb to the present circumstances, we leave and go to some other state or place that is more hospitable, um, or we stay and fight. And that's the choice that I and my family and, again, millions of other people have made. And and at some point, we are going to be victorious. We just don't know when, um, but we know that it's important, and we feel very, very lucky to be a part of it. I want to ask you about all of that, but and I was was going to ask you about this later, but how have your kids, your, your kids have gone through a lot of their childhood with you as a candidate for the Senate, for president, for governor, away a lot, under siege a lot, and so on. How, how have they processed that? Differently, um, based on their, their birth order. You know, so for um, Ulysses, our oldest, you know, he, he was old enough in the, the Senate and the other races to, to really appreciate what was happening. Also old enough to ask me a, a question. I remember this was 2013. He was born in 2006. And Ted Cruz and others had just successfully shut down the United States government over their opposition to the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. We were in this awful stalemate, um, kind of held hostage by the Republicans in, in Congress. And there was this window that opened up that allowed us to go back to our districts. And I availed myself of the opportunity, flew home for you know a 12-hour visit. I'm putting Ulysses to bed. And he asked me this question. He says, why do you want to have a job where you're never with us? Mm. And here I was in a government that was shut down, the very def- definition of dysfunction, uh, a freshman in the minority party, um, not a lot of prospects of getting anything done in the near future. And it, it, really, it really got me. And it made me be so much more conscious of the work that I do, the choices that I make, and the sacrifice that is entailed, not by me, but by the people in my life who I love and who, who love me. Most importantly, our, our kids. And so Ulysses' question has informed really every decision I've made since then. Look, look if we're going to run for governor, we better fucking give this everything that we have because it means a year away from him and Molly and Henry. Uh, it means extraordinary sacrifice on the part of others who sign up as staffers or volunteers or or donors. And listen, th- there are people whose lives hang in the balance based on the outcome of, of this decision. So let's get after it. Um, and that urgency that I feel in the work that I've done is directly connected to those kids. Now, Henry, our youngest, who's 12 years old, you know, has had a, a different experience. You know, he came of age when I was still in Congress. His dad comes home every Thursday night late, leaves every Monday morning early. And this is just what, what life is. And so he seems to be um, perhaps more understanding or just, you know, um, in the flow of what it means to be in, in, in public service. But I hope just as I, I'm sure the case has been for your kids, that while it may or may not be lost on them now, as they get older, they'll realize that we were in the most necessary battles of American history, doing our best to do the right thing. You know, I will tell you, my kids are considerably older than your kids. In fact, 
when you talked about how y- your kids at various ages interact with you, I'm already going through that with grandkids. So I don't know that they ever fully, I mean, if I have, if I had to look back on my career, I guess the thing I, I most regret is the time that I wish I had been there for them, that I couldn't be there for them, as important as the things were that I thought I was working on. And they were. Uh, there is a sacrifice, you know. And the one thing you learn, my wife once said to me, don't blink an eye and have their childhood be over. Hmm. And she was so right about that. You know, I'm struck when you say how that your, your kids, would you say a sophomore? Sophomore, freshman, yeah. and sixth Because I remember meeting him in your living room uh-huh. in, uh, I guess it was 2019, which wasn't that long ago, four years ago. And, you know, he was a kid. Like sophomore in high school is like big stuff. Yeah. He, he um, you know, beyond having his own life and being independent and not engaging with us in conversation the way that he used to, um, it's just so exciting to see him dive into his interests and passions and pursuits mm-hmm. and to see him develop into the adult that he's going to be. I can, I can kind of see yeah. where, where he's going and it makes me incredibly proud and, and happy. Um, and it's amazing the change in just those short four years between yeah. when you met him and, yeah. and where he is. Today. No, it's a fascinating thing. Uh, it's a fascinating thing to, uh, to watch. Just one more thing on the kids. Do the older kids, there, there's obviously an awareness among these young people when a campaign is going on, they see ads on television, they, mm. they see, you know, they catch the news, they, they see it, they probably, I'm dating myself, they see a bunch of stuff online. Does that impact on them? Do people talk to them? Yeah. I, I, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I see our kids at times really just wanting to be distant from this which is not unlike what many kids do regardless of what their parents do in their yeah. lives they want to do something different but, but in their few case, of them few few kids deal with their parents being prominent in in the public discourse yeah uh in in their case i i think it is pursuing things that are outside of of politics yeah, right. you know um and i'll meet it's interesting as i travel the state and even here in chicago i'll meet young people who are the same age as my kids who are nerding out on politics this is their life this is what they want to do they're as civically engaged as a human can be and uh, my kids are just perhaps because this is what amy and i have chosen to do there and and there's so much public scrutiny of our lives mm-hmm. and specifically of me and that can be good and i think that can also be really bad and that can be just very tough to process i'll just say this other thing very very quickly if if i'm ever tempted to you know think about the hardships involved in being in in public life or to be away from family. You know, I'm just reminded by this young woman that I just met um, who's from Pennsylvania and, you know, her parents are working super tough jobs and, you know, sometimes working double shifts or two or three jobs at a time. They're not seeing their kids either. Extraordinary sacrifice, all in service to, you know, the generation that comes yeah, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. The only difference being the level of public scrutiny that's involved and in yeah. whether you read about your parents on the internet. Yeah. So let's talk about those because we did a we did have a, a discussion back in 2019 and I urge people who are interested to go back and listen to that. It's, it's available. But I want to pick up the story 
and sort of go backward and forward and talk about these three races, because they were all very different. The first race, you were a, a r- relatively unknown congressman, known to your constituents, known to some people in Washington, but Texas is a big state, and you take on Ted Cruz, and you take off like a rocket. I mean, Easy for me to say, I wasn't the one busting my ass going to, what, 254 counties? Is Mm -hmm. that what it is? Yeah. In Texas and um, live streaming (laughs) your ass off uh, and doing all the things that put you in that position. But you also were running against kind of the Darth Vader of Democrats and maybe some others, but lots of money flowing in, a lot of wind at your back. And you lost by three points which is still a loss, but in Texas, for a Democrat to come that close was a big deal. Then months later, you're contemplating a race for president. Talk about, first of all, that first race and the experience of that first race. And then we can talk about the process of thinking about running for president. Yeah. Well, so that, that first race was something magic. Um, you know, the, the certainty that we felt upon entering the race, you know, Amy and I made that decision together alone without consulting any, you know, political professionals. In fact, yeah. those jerks like me, those that we ran yeah. the idea by were like, yeah. no, this is, it's suicide. You have a wonderful opportunity in Congress, you know, just bide your time for the next 20 years and you'll be in a leadership position and we keep getting reelected in El Paso and watch the wonderful things that you'll do. Going against Ted Cruz in Texas is certain political death and don't do it. But we knew from what had happened in the 2016 election with the election of Donald Trump, we knew from what I had seen firsthand from Ted Cruz and serving with him, we were both elected the same year to Congress in, in 2012, the real danger he posed for Texas and the country and the real opportunity we had, should we be able to replace him with something better? And so we took that on the road, literally going to every one of those 254 counties. And what might have seemed from a distance to be this overnight sensation was really the product of busting our ass every single minute of every single day in obscurity for for much of it, for months. One of the things that I think did ignite interest in that campaign was the fact that you live streamed so much of your campaign that it was obvious that you were out there busting your ass and meeting people and having actual engagement with voters across Texas. And that was fresh and it was new and it was interesting to people. We made a virtue of a necessity. We, we didn't have the resources to buy TV or direct mailers or the name ID to, to find other ways to connect with, with voters. We, we had to go and physically be present in your community. And then we had to show the work um, so that those in your community who weren't able to attend knew that we were there. And those outside of the community knew that we were literally going everywhere and could check me on anything that I was saying or doing and to make sure that I was consistent or to call me out if I, if I wasn't. So it, it was a wonderful experience. And I learned a lot, most importantly, from the people that I met across the state of Texas. I, I got to work with so many amazing people who signed up you know, the vast majority of them as volunteers, not earning a penny, doing the toughest work, knocking on doors, making phone calls, raising money, awareness, votes, um, and produce some real success. You're right. We didn't win, but 
we helped usher in a completely new political landscape in the state of Texas. So uh, a dozen new Democrats elected to the state legislature, um, 19 African-American women elected to judicial positions in Harris County, home to Houston, Texas, um, changing the face of criminal justice in the process. Um, And um, thousands, tens of thousands of people who now had political experience that they could leverage to run their own races for city council, county commissioner's court, state rep. They could work on other campaigns. Um, and they were now going to participate in future elections. And they did. And we've seen that in in every cycle since yeah. then. So it was, it was an incredible experience. Let, let me ask you about the end of it, because all those people, I mean, I know what it's like to be involved in a campaign like that, that is about not just the candidate, but something larger. And you invest yourself in it, and then it ends, and it and it doesn't end the way you hoped. It doesn't end the way many many of them probably expected because they're out there and they're feeling it. You know, they're feeling it, and you're probably feeling because it it's the only way to survive, uh, like emotionally, spiritually, and physically when you're subjecting yourself to it. And then it doesn't happen, and. You know, you had won every race you'd ever been in before that for the city council, for Congress. We may have talked about this a little last time, but what, what what was that like? You know, you're going 100 miles an hour in a given direction and the bus comes to a stop. And the bus might have stopped, but you're still inside <laughs> yes. going 100 yeah, miles an hour. Yeah, that windshield is pretty... Yeah. Uh, pretty yeah. So you really feel it. And there there's no school for how you come off of or down from an experience like this. It, it is inherently extraordinary and in Texas, absolutely unique. And so it, it's back to family and friends. And, and um, you know, I was still a member of Congress until my term expired in, in 2019. So g- going back to work and making sure that I could deliver for my constituents and make sure the transition to the extraordinary Veronica Escobar was, was able to take place. But it, it's it's a it's almost inexplicable. I, I probably cannot Were you find depressed? the words. What's that? Were you depressed? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would be impressed to meet the person who who wouldn't feel that after mm-hmm. an experience like that. You know, it's funny when I ran for Congress in 2012 against a long term incumbent, against all the odds in the world, and we won miraculously after a similar amount of hard work. I was actually a little bit down after that. It, it coming down off of that level of yes. effort, yeah, day I, I, in, day yeah. out. The the extraordinary focus yeah. that you're able to maintain, the discipline in your life, and then it is over. And yeah, it's, it's it, it, I've you know I've experienced it in a different way, but yeah, yeah. winning and losing. Of course, you've you've probably had the very same yeah um, experience. Except there wasn't my name on the ballot, so yeah. that helps when you're not successful. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your Sleep Number setting. 
Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition, wherever you get your podcasts. And now, back to the show. Let me get out of sequence and ask you, this last race for governor, you'd come off the, you know, you come off this disappointing race for president, and you said at that time, this is it. I'm not, I don't foresee another race in my future. And then you, you, there you were. And I'm sure that events in Texas called you to it. But that looked, you know, if there was wind at your back in 2018, there were some significant headwinds, it felt like, in 2022. You must have known that from the beginning, right? Absolutely. There, first of all, there's the conventional political wisdom that the party whose president has just won power in the previous cycle is going to have a really hard time winning anything, especially if it's held by the other party in the following cycle. Yeah, I was a purveyor of some of that conventional wisdom. Yeah, You have the most restrictive registration and voting laws. No, you have the most restrictive registration and voting laws in, in the state of Texas. You You probably know this well, but in our primary election, for example, more than 10% of the mail-in ballots were rejected. Mm-hmm. One out of every 10 people who voted at the tail end of a pandemic at a distance did not have their vote count. Um, the most onerous voter ID laws, the racial gerrymandering of our districts, one ballot drop-off location per county, including counties like Harris that have yeah. 5 million people. Yes. It, it's, it's going to be tough, but we just lost, we had just lost 700 people uh, during a winter storm where in the energy capital of the world, we couldn't keep the lights on or the heat running or the power flowing. We had the most restrictive abortion access laws that were contributing to a maternal mortality crisis three times as deadly for black women. We led the country in the number of school shootings. This is prior to Uvalde, but following the massacre in El Paso where yes. 23 people lost their lives yes. on the eve of which Greg Abbott, the current governor, the guy that I ran against, had urged his fellow Texans to defend themselves and to take matters into their own hands. I guarantee you, this guy who killed 23 people in El Paso, who posted that he'd come to our community to repel the Hispanic invasion of Texas, the political takeover that was going to replace him as a white man, was listening to Greg Abbott as he had listened to Donald Trump loud and clear. And we had to do something about that. And and here's something. This is, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off, and this is going to sound counterintuitive, but 
but running for office, especially in, in this last race, seemed like the least selfish thing I can do. Counterintuitive because what are you talking about, Beto? It's, it's your ego. It's your name on the ballot. It's, it's about you in that race. And, and what I've come to understand, especially the more I understand our history as a country, a democracy, and especially in Texas, is that these long, tough fights require us to do things that are by definition not going to be easy and may even seem impossible. But if we don't do them, we don't advance the cause, and we're only going to delay the day upon which we finally realize these victories. And the less I made it about me and the more I made it about Texas and Texans and what we needed to do and finding my role within that, the more natural a decision this was for me. And maybe not unlike you know, other times I've, I've entered the arena, I, I didn't know what the chances were. I, I knew what the conventional odds told me was possible or impossible, but I knew that I needed to do this. I knew I needed to be part of it, just like, again, tens of thousands of other Texans knew they had to do the right thing at the right time, regardless of the outcome or or the odds. And so that's the mindset. Uh, regardless of what I had said before, after the presidential, I wanted to crawl into a cave and never show my face in in public again. I I had, you know, I put myself out there um, as uh, I knew how uh, in service for a a higher cause, defeating this guy Donald Trump, who posed posed a mortal threat to our country and our democracy. I thought we had built something special in Texas, the coalition of young people, of Democrats, of independents, of Republicans, half a million of whom had voted for me in in that Senate race, bridging some rural-urban divides. Um, Can we bring this in service to the single greatest task before us? It just turned out I wasn't the right person for the job. We didn't run the right campaign. It wasn't the right time. We weren't prepared after running an exhausting Mm -hmm. two-year campaign for Senate to mount an even larger campaign for president. I don't know all the reasons why, um, but but after that, I I think selfishly, I thought it was about me when when it's not. It is about all of us and what we are going to do together. So I now know better than to say I will or won't do this thing. I, I just know that I've got to be part of this fight. I don't know the role or the path. I know it's important. I know it's part of my life's work. And back to our kids, I know I owe it to Ulysses, Molly, and Henry to give this everything I've got while I still have a chance to. Okay, back to the governor's race, because I do want to talk about the presidential thing, which is an experience unto itself. Uh, you, 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 like I said, you had these headwinds. Um, everything you say is, you know, I, I believe about uh, Texas, the challenges uh, in Texas, the the policy challenges. I mean, I disagree, obviously, with the direction uh, that Texas has been led. Uh, that said, you lost by 11 points. Um, did you know the whole way? I mean, did unlike the first race, where I think you had a sense you might pull it off, did you believe you were going to pull this off? Yes. Um, there is no other way to get through to it. run. Yes. Um, and... You know, I. It, it's tough because, again, you know, we knew the odds were against us from the beginning. Um, the last time a Democrat has won this office in Texas, Ann, Ann Richards, Richards in, in 1990, 1990 happens yeah. to be, 
you know, the greatest governor of my lifetime, maybe in the in the history of also the, the state of Texas. one hell of a politician too. Extraordinary. Yeah, no one like her before or or since. Um, we knew the the recently passed and signed uh, voter suppression legislation was going to make this even harder. But you know, is it possible that in a state that has now totally banned abortion without exception? A state whose governor, after these beautiful children were slaughtered in Uvalde, shows up the next day, not the day of because he went to a fundraiser, shows up the next day and tells the parents in the community it could have been worse, and then does nothing to make it any less likely that it happened in in any other school. A state that, that couldn't keep the lights or the power on, that caused tens of billions of dollars of damage and 700, 700 deaths. Are they really going to reelect this guy if there is a choice? And can we make that choice as clear as day and give this everything we've got, raise as much money as we can, travel to every single part of the state, learn from the mistakes and the campaigns that we've run in the past and apply that all singularly to this effort of winning political power so we can make life better for yeah. the people of Texas. So you tried and it you know, you you lost fairly decisively. Why? Well, some of the reasons, you know, I've I've laid out um, the voter suppression, the fact that though we raised $80 million in this governor's race, which was a world record, except for the 140 or $150 million that Greg Abbott raised and spent, you know, almost two to one, um, the, the levers of political power in the hands of a party that is absolutely ruthless about maintaining and growing power. There's all of that. Um, there are things that certainly, you know, as we gain more clarity in hindsight, we'll say, well, we should have done this or we could have done these things better. But here's something that that sticks out to me. Um, young people who were such a part of the success that we enjoyed in 2018 were not present in this election. Y- young people who have the most to gain or to lose based on the outcome in this election didn't show up. And, and it's interesting, every young person that I meet at the University of Chicago including many of them who are from Texas, I asked this question. Um, clearly, most of them are voting and participating in our elections, but I asked them, of, of your peers who do not vote, why are they not voting? And I met this young man named Jacob, and I wrote this down. Uh, he said, it's hard to buy into good things happening when good things haven't happened. Mm-hmm. You think about those young students at Michigan State who know about Sandy Hook, know about Parkland, know about Uvalde, know about the shooting in El Paso in 2019, and haven't seen Congress do jack shit. And listen, um, all due respect to um, Senator Murphy and Senator Cornyn, for that matter, for the uh, marginal progress that they have made. And I believe that is the path to even greater progress Mm -hmm. down the road. But if you're a young person, 18 years old, and people are dying all around you, why would you participate in this stuff? You vote, you don't vote, you get the same exact result. And you perhaps don't have the historical perspective that you and I have to know that these struggles take a long time. 75 years from 1890, when the Voting Rights Act is proposed at that time and is shot down through a filibuster, till 1965, when LBJ is able to get it passed in, in Congress, ushering in the first true multiracial democracy. 75 years People were dying, struggling, sacrificing in service of voting rights and democracy. 
gun violence is going to take us a really long time. But I don't blame you for coming to the conclusion that maybe this shit just does not work. I, it's not justified. Well, listen, in my I opinion, say all I the time it. democracy is an ongoing struggle between cynicism and hope. And uh, right now, cynicism is, uh, you know, is on the march. But, you know, there were other states where, you know, Michigan is a good example where uh, there was a pretty significant youth turnout. And one, one thing I wanted to ask you about in uh, Texas is you, you have made a practice of traveling the entire state. You emphasize the issues that you're talking about here. Is it possible that, I mean, I think you did probably less well in some of those places than you did before. Some of it had to do maybe with you becoming even more outspoken on some of these issues. When you ran for president, for example, everyone remembers you standing on a debate stage saying, hell yeah, we're going to take your your AK-47s. You know, there were a bunch of folks I know who cheered. I bet you there were a bunch of folks who said, whoa, wait a second. And probably Beto O'Rourke, the congressman from El Paso, might not have said that. Maybe even, the, I don't think the candidate for the Senate said exactly that, that we're going to take those guns away. Did the positions that you took in the presidential race hurt you in the governor's race? I honestly don't know. It's interesting. I'll I'll tell you a story that that might shed some light on this. I'm in Junction, Texas, very red, somewhat rural community. There are 50, 60 people who show up in this little library annex in the governor's race last year to hear me speak. There's probably a 100, 120 people outside protesting my visit, most of them armed with AR-15s, AK-47s, and a variety of other guns. Hope they had a back door. You know, it's interesting. uh, While I'm holding this town hall in the library, they're banging on the windows. They're scratching at the doors. they're, They're yelling to try to make it impossible for us to hold this meeting. I leave the meeting. And um, I stopped to grab a cup of coffee. When I stop, my truck is surrounded by those protesters who come out. And, you know, all at once, they're, they're yelling at me about immigration, about open borders, about guns. And this one gentleman who's wearing a shirt that says, guns don't kill people, Hillary Clinton kills people, and he's got an AR-15 on it, says, I bet you don't even know anything about an AR-15. And, uh, you know, he proceeds to give me an education on this. And I, I just listen. I found that's one of the best ways to engage with people. And I said, hey, I hear you. Let me ask you a question. Would you be for raising the age of purchase for an AR-15 to 21? He's like, yeah, I can get behind that. That makes sense. Are you for a universal background check? Yeah, I, I buy my gun from a federally licensed arms dealer. I had to go through a background check. I think everybody should. Do you believe in a safe storage law so a kid can't get his hands on a gun and blow his brains out or take it to school and kill some other kid there? Absolutely. I I store my guns safely here. That just makes common sense. I said, that is my position in this campaign. That's what I want to do as governor. That's what I know to be politically possible in this state. But it's possible, David, that all he knows is what I said. Well, that's a little bit different than the position that you took on that stage. And and, and I still have that position. There is no reason that anybody should have an AR-15. It is a weapon designed exclusively for the purpose of killing people on a battlefield. Ask those parents in Uvalde who could only identify their kids by the shoes that they were wearing because their bodies were so badly mangled by this high-impact, high-velocity round that just destroys all the soft tissue Mm -hmm. that it meets 
how they feel about this issue. Um, and listen, you don't have to you, you don't have to even go to Uvalde because we're sitting here on the south side of Chicago. That's right. And a lot of these young people who are who are out there shooting at each other are doing it with semi-automatic weapons. So no, I I mean I'm not arguing the but I'm just on politics yeah. here. And I know that you actually were making this case in front of an audience down there and some guys snickered after Uvalde. I think it was after Uvalde. It, it was. And you said, you may think this is funny, motherfucker, but I don't. And yeah, I, I just, the reason I ask this is because I do think, I mean, the discussion you had with that guy is the discussion we should be having, and it should be a discussion, and there should be back and forth, um, but we've the environment seems to have hardened even since you ran in 2018. Am I wrong about that? No, I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah, the, the lines have become deeper and um, tougher to, to break through. Um, you know, the, the only way I know to do it is to be there in person. I, I, I can't, I'm not going to break through in a 30 second ad, mm-hmm. especially if Abbott's spending 140, 150 million. That's before independent expenditures in, in this state. Um, I, I've got to show up in person and connect with you. And I can't just do it once and I can't do it in one election cycle. It has to be sustained over time. There are 55 counties in Texas that don't have a Democratic Party chair. There are 55 counties in Texas where there's really just one party rule. Probably Fox is the only cable channel that is playing Mm -hmm. in any public place that you go to. And it's or OAN or Newsmax. That's right. It's no wonder if if Democrats have forsaken these communities, which they have. There's no other way to to call it, um, that these communities are not listening to a message about reinvesting in public education or reopening these closed public hospitals, more of which have shut down in Texas and rural communities than any other part of America, about making sure that you can get online so you can finish your education or find a job or that we fix the roads or the water system that is shit in your community because there's no contest in November. Republicans can take your vote for granted. Therefore, no accountability, no improvement, no progress. I don't blame you for being pissed off, but if we don't show up and connect with you and describe a vision and a future that is only possible if we are part of the solution. If Democrats are there and are winning elected office, then we're going to continue down this same road. And it, and it has to be a sustained investment and commitment over time. You know, Stacey Abrams, I think, has shown us that in Georgia, this, this decade-long project that helped to produce the two extraordinary Senate victories, the Electoral College win for Biden. Really, three Senate victories. Three Senate victories now, exactly. Um, you know, it, it it took a long time. And obviously, it is, Stacey, it is a lot of other people who are involved in that work in, in Georgia, along with these candidates who put themselves out there. We need more of that in Texas, a state that is three times the size of Georgia and receives a fraction of the investment. Listen, I think showing up is is extraordinarily important. Why did Barack Obama, Barack Hussein Obama, from Chicago, a black guy from Chicago, Illinois, win the state of Indiana yeah. in 2008? Because he spent a lot of time in the state of uh, Indiana, and he helped, and that helped, he was he could defeat caricatures through his personal campaigning and his presence in the state. But let me just ask you one other thing about this. It felt like the issue of immigration and borders and so on, and you're 
incredibly fluent in this because you live on the border and you have, you know, most of your life and you've seen all of this. It seems like the Republicans in defining the issue plane made a lot of headway with that issue. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. So you ask Abbott, why why do we have an exodus of, of teachers from our classrooms? Why are kids in fourth grade not able to read at, at grade level? Why is our lunch being eaten by every other state in the union when it comes to producing the talent that needs to be globally competitive? His response to that, these Mexicans are coming over the border right now and they're going to get you. Ask them about the power grid. It's immigration. Ask them about gun violence. It is immigration. And the message from Republicans is beautifully simple and absolutely politically advantageous. Build the wall, militarize the border, send them back. Ask a Democrat, well, we need to hire more immigration judges and we need to shorten the time to adjudicate asylum claims and we need comprehensive immigration reform. What the fuck does that mean to anybody since we haven't had it since 1986? The solutions, and and I don't pretend they're real solutions, offered by Republicans are simple, crystal clear, and fit on a bumper sticker on the back of your car. Democrats, acknowledging the complexity of the issue, um, really have been at a political disadvantage. The only way I think that we get through this is by solving it. At some point, when Democrats have control, as Biden briefly did, as President Obama briefly did, they've got to use that capital to solve this challenge. Otherwise, we, we continue to fail at something that is so fundamentally important to America, and Democrats will continue to be thrashed in election after election on an issue that they have a very hard time describing and winning on. Um, and, and lastly, I, I do think there's an opportunity for Democrats to talk about immigration in non-defensive terms. You don't want to be Republican light and be like, you know what, I want to militarize the border, but just not as much. I want to be punitive on these asylum seekers, just not as bad as Trump. No, I believe in immigration. I think we're so goddamn lucky that people want to come from Mm -hmm. all over the planet to this country, reveal their genius to us, to do better for themselves, to do better for for every single one of Mm -hmm. us. That is is America, and we are going to lose it if we don't capitalize on it right now. Let's find a safe, legal way for people to come here and do this the right way. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now, back to the show. I'm the son of an immigrant, okay? So I believe deeply in that. I'm grateful every day that my father, who was a refugee, was able to get here as a child and that... uh, that we as a family have had the opportunities uh, that we've had. But 
the people of El Paso know the problem because they're living the problem. We had two million people coming across the border, you know, last uh, in the last year, and it is an untenable situation. Uh, so, doesn't there have to be? I mean, well, I should ask you, what do you think about what the president just announced, which essentially is to say if people cross the border illegally, they're going to be presumed not to be qualified for asylum and that further that they if they can seek asylum or safe haven in other countries along the way that they should do so. What was your reaction to that? I'm sympathetic to the political predicament that they find themselves in. In the El Paso sector where I live, the El Paso Border Patrol sector, there have been 50,000 apprehensions every single month for the last three months. Um, In downtown El Paso, you can still find asylum seekers from Venezuela who are sleeping on the streets of South Oregon, right, right across from Sacred Heart Church. Amy and I volunteer to do our best to help places like Annunciation House and other Catholic charities mm-hmm. to um, to do our best to, to be there for people who are at their, their most vulnerable. Um, I mentioned the political dynamic of this, which is consistently a loser for Democrats. But I, I don't think this is the right answer. Um, you know, um, use this app um, to make an appointment um, we're turning you away at the ports of entry because of Title 42, um, a really cynical use of a public health provision in the law mm-hmm. that is frustrating people's attempts to lawfully and legitimately claim asylum in the United States of America. Now, they can make that claim. It basically compelled people to wait across the border rather than penniless to- mm-hmm. with their kids. If they're lucky, it goes out of effect in May, which is why Biden is is doing what he's doing right now. Right. You know, I I think the the whole reason you have asylum law is that that people can't return to their home country. They can't remain where they are. Um, They've got to do their best, as you and I would do, as your parents did, to save their lives and the lives of their children and give them a chance to succeed. And for our entire history, that has been the story of of America. And look, I'm sure this is well-intentioned, knowing the president, knowing the people who are advising him. But I don't think this is is the right solution. But what is the right solution? You know, with the divided government we have now, I I recognize that it's hard. I, I wish that within more unified government when we had it, this was a greater priority and that we had use that political capital to advance legislation that would have allowed for that safe, legal, orderly path. So raising the visa caps, you know, if you're in Mexico trying to come here legally to join a family member, you've got 22, 23 years in front of you. You're coming from India, the Philippines, you're looking at a similar wait time. If you're an asylum seeker, six years to adjudicate your claim. And you may be waiting in Mexico on the streets of Ciudad Juarez, your your children pray to kidnappers, to transnational criminal organizations, to every manner of depredation. I don't blame you. I don't justify this. Look, but I don't blame you for seeking to cross in between ports of entry because you're trying to save your kid's life. We, we have got to make allowances for human nature and the fact that people cannot stay in what have become the deadliest countries on the face of the planet, made that way in no small part based on U.S. policy going back 
half a century. So, so we've got skin in the game. We've got culpability. These are the people that we are connected to through history, through land, through family, through culture, through language now, you name it. I wish there this was more of a foreign policy priority for the Biden administration. And listen, I, I know they've got so many things, Ukraine, not the least of them, that they've got to focus on. But this hemisphere is desperate for the attention that it deserves, that it needs. If we don't use the extraordinary convening power of the United States to bring the countries together to work on hemispheric solutions to this, you and I, if we're lucky enough to meet again in 10 years, we'll be having the exact same conversation. In in summary, this is not enough of a priority for this administration, nor has it been for administrations in the past. Commensurate with the urgency that it demands. We could go on for a full for the rest of the time talking about this. I, I still think as as a as a policy matter as well as a political matter, the status quo is not just unacceptable for the people who are trying to come here, but the status quo is not acceptable for communities like El Paso along the border and other communities, uh, you know. Uh, so what I didn't hear from you was what to do at this juncture about that. And it seems like a very thorny problem. Allow people to claim asylum on U.S. soil um, to begin that process adjudicate it much more quickly. If it's taking years, let's do it in months or or even weeks. And look, this is not popular amongst Democrats, but if you do not pass the bar to claim asylum, you are going back to your country of origin, no ifs, ands, or buts. If you do, if you do pass that bar, welcome to America. I mentioned raising the visa caps. Um, I'd like to see us have processing centers on the border that are fully staffed. I'd like to see us hire more immigration judges. Their workload is insane. And it's yeah. part of the reason that you have a years long right. wait on some of these things. You know, the idea of processing this stuff in country, it sounds nice. It would be wonderful if it worked, but there are people who cannot stay at the risk of their own lives or their children's lives in the countries that are in right now. But you cannot escape the fact that all of these things will improve our immigration system at the margins. The only way to get this done uh, in a comprehensive way is legislatively through Congress. And that means expending extraordinary valuable political capital from this administration or the next. And thus far, you know, going all the way back to to Ronald Reagan and, you know, I know the Obama administration tried. I know the George W. Bush administration yeah, both, tried. Both tried hard. I mean, the Obama, in, in 2013, I think the uh, there was a comprehensive immigration bill that passed the Senate with Absolutely. like 67, 68 votes and the House refused to take it You had it a up. speaker who was beholden to the most radical element of, of his yeah, party. Not, not unlike the situation we have right Absolutely. now. So let me go back to your journey uh, in the in the time we have left, uh, because we didn't talk about the we, we the decision to run for president. And you started talking about the fact that you were exhausted after this long uh, uh, race for the Senate. There were a lot of people urging you to run for president. Uh, and uh, you 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 entered the race and it didn't go well from the beginning. And uh, you have to wonder, did it not go well for the beginning? Because you didn't really have time to think it through uh, properly because you were exhausted because you didn't really, really have your theory of the case down and your, 
comparative advantage down and all the things you need uh, in a race like uh, just tell me what your analysis is of of what happened because you you ended up started with a lot of ballyhoo and ended up uh, leaving before the Iowa caucuses. Yeah, I th- I think your assessment is pretty accurate. You know, in hindsight, you, you don't see this in the moment. Perhaps I should have. Um, we had just run as hard and and as tough uh, a campaign as I could possibly have mounted or mustered, and physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, um, absolutely exhausted, depleted, um, and yet I mentioned how how magical that campaign was. Certainly not because of me, because of the people who comprised the campaign. About the Senate race. Because of that moment in Texas, Mm -hmm. yes, the Senate race in 17 and 18. And there was really something special about that. And as we as a country, those of us who cared about this, were thinking through how to defeat Donald Trump and get past what I I still believe is is, is a continuing existential threat to our democracy and, and to our country, I thought that what we had just been able to be a part of in Texas might offer us a, a way forward. And I felt compelled for that reason to enter the race. Um, you know, it turns out that, you know, our democracy and the democratic primary process has um, its own extraordinary wisdom and chose the person best suited to confront and ultimately defeat Donald Trump and to lead our country right now. Mm-hmm. That's Joe Biden. So what know, is the difference? I look at it that way. What is the difference just for people who are sitting there contemplating their futures in presidential politics? What did you learn about that, about how a presidential race is differs from running for governor, running for a senator in a state? What is it that makes it the the sort of unique test that it is. It's just orders of magnitude, um, more expensive, more complex organizationally. Um, the states, the counties within the states, the subject matter expertise that you've got to compile on on your team, um, the case that you need to make um, no longer on a local or statewide media landscape, but before the entire country on cable TV, on the internet, um, on podcasts like, like yours. Um, the fact, and this is important, this is something that I came to belatedly, David. I remember I was talking to Julian Castro. This is long after, this is in 2020. So this is after both of us are no longer in the race. And I said, you know, I, I, I really wanted to beat Ted Cruz with, with all my being and my body. Um, I really wanted to beat Donald Trump with all my being in my body. I didn't have that urgency or monomaniacal focus on beating Julian Castro or Elizabeth Warren or Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg. Any one of them would be far superior to the president that we have today. Any one of them I could gladly get behind should they be our, our party's nominee. Um, and, and when it's not just one or two Democrats that you're running against, but 27 Democrats that you're you're running against, that that was really difficult. I'd always run one-on-one races: Beto versus Anthony Cobos for mm-hmm. city, Beto versus Sylvester Reyes, Beto versus Ted Cruz. I understand that. I get that. I know how to differentiate myself, draw the contrast, um, connect with people. I, 
in a crowded Democratic primary that is national in scope, um, I didn't know how to do that uh, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> and um, but look, I, I I was very lucky to do it. The team that joined me yeah. in this. Um, so fortunate to have worked with them, the volunteers who comprise so much of that campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm will always be grateful let, for. Let me ask you one more uh, question about this. Like I said, you entered with a great deal of ballyhoo. You were famously on the the cover of a magazine, uh, saying I was born to do this, and you know I know what you meant, but it was interpreted differently. But without dealing with that particular instance. The kind of scrutiny that you get, and particularly when you come in and you come in with it, there is a hazing process Mm -hmm. that happens. Were you prepared for for that? No, no. So you mentioned in in the- Vanity Fair, I guess it was. Yeah. You mentioned in the Texas Senate race, I was an unknown congressman from from West Texas, and I could labor in obscurity for months. Um, meeting people, learning the state, you know, parts of the state I, I had never visited before, um, really understanding the issues and how to talk about the things I cared about most. When I say it like this, this is how people respond. When I say it like that, I get a, a different reaction. Um, the things I learned and picked up along the way that I could then share on my next visit. I just met this guy named David and he has this extraordinary story about trying to get covered by Medicaid and how expensive and arduous it was. Here's my plan to change this as a U.S. Senator in the presidential election, especially with the fanfare, um, that greeted us as we entered. There was no time for that. You, you are ready for prime time or you are not. Yes. And um, clearly at that level, on that stage, in that race, against that field, um, I, I, I was not ready to the degree that so many of these other candidates were. And it really gave me um, a humbling appreciation for um, someone like Joe Biden, for someone like Pete Buttigieg, for someone like Bernie Sanders, for so many of these people who were were so good as candidates and and had listen um in many cases they had prepared for years for these races in some cases they had run these races before um you know 4 years ago um but all that being said they they did really exceptional work in in making the case and differentiating themselves and making this a contest that ultimately produced what I think is the best candidate, not for our party, but for our country. And I think that's been borne out over the last two years. So look, all's well that ends well. And I'm, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to have been part of it. I'm grateful for the fact that Joe Biden is the president of the United States right now. And I, I will continue to do everything I can in whatever role or form it takes to be part of what I think is the most important fight in the country. And that is to make sure that our democracy survives, that the right to vote is honored, and that the will of the people is expressed in the policy that we adopt and the people who represent us in positions of public trust. And the place where I'm most effective in doing that, I believe, is in Texas. But I'll serve in whatever capacity, whatever role, whatever way makes the most sense. Your campaigns were powered by, uh, in many ways, by the ability to communicate creatively, authentically on social media. Social media has also become a vehicle for disinformation, for conspiracy theories. It has powered that as well. When we talk about the coarsening of our politics, 
as someone who's an expert in this and really good at it, what's the answer to that? How do we combat that? We just have to be as engaged as we possibly can be. And the conditions might suck, as you described, the disinformation, the lies, um, the intentionally misleading information that is put out there. So it's incumbent upon us, in this case, Democrats, to be on those platforms and to be engaging and not in a, in a patronizing watch my dance on TikTok or uh, my young staffer composes my stuff on Instagram or the tweets that you see, but in your own authentic, honest voice, in the way in which you communicate in real life, you're going to communicate on these networks. That's the way that we're going to meet people where they are. Yeah, when you say meet people where they are, sometimes people are in places where algorithms shove them that you and I are not going to be invited. Right. Well, I could hold my breath and hope that Congress is going to hold Facebook or Twitter accountable for feeding people this disinformation and making money off of that and treating people as products. The challenges that, that you describe are real. They demand a real solution from Congress and regulators. But in the meantime, we can't abandon the playing field. And I saw that happen in Texas. Uh, Democrats decrying these unfair memes and the innovative, malicious ways that Republicans were using social media. I don't know that Democrats need to lie or be malicious, but I think they can get after it and and do a much better job in connecting with people in that way. Uh, when you were talking earlier, it sounded like you wanted to devote yourself to trying to rebuild the Democratic Party in the state. Is that something that you're focused on now? Are you is that are you going to take that on as your project? We, we've been taking it on. So we have this organization called Powered by People that we started in late 2019. And it's focused on voting rights and voter registration. Uh, I mentioned it's a, it's the toughest state in the union in which to get on the mm -hmm. rolls to register to vote. Um, we've registered 260,000 people, um, new voters who are on the rolls today. We're doing off-cycle voter engagement. So we're knocking on your door not to say, hey, David, the primary's in a week. Can I count on your vote for um, you know, uh, so-and-so? It is hey, I'm, I'm showing up to find out how things are in your neighborhood, to get to know you better, to build a relationship, and to make sure that when we talk about elections and voting, it's not the first time that you hear from me. So that work is important, and it's important for the party. It's important for democracy. And that's where you, you in the near term. And I love right? that. Yeah. I, I love volunteering mm -hmm. in that organization. I love working with those other volunteers. I love what we've built so far. And I love knowing that this is going to be a really long, tough journey, but it's going to be fun because of the company we keep, the goal that we have set for ourselves, and the fact that there's nothing more important that we could be doing with our lives. And so, you know, all that's good. All right. Beto O'Rourke, it's always good to see you. Thanks again for coming here to the Institute of Politics and inspiring some young people, the Beto O'Rourke's of the future. And I hope to continue the conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for this conversation and for the work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Miriam Finder Annenberg. The show is also produced by Jeff Fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.